Hey, good morning. Hope you're doing okay. Uh, my name's Michael, and um, I'm excited to get to share with you today uh, from Mark chapter 7. But let me start with this. Uh, so I'm at home a few days ago, and uh, I've ordered a new phone, the SE, the cheap iPhone, yes, and I get it, and it's so cool because you can take it and you can stick it up to your old iPhone and it will just automatically transfer all your information from one phone to the other. At least that's what's supposed to happen. But somehow in the midst of my transfer, you know, the transfer of information, it stopped. And it just went to a black screen with a little white apple and that's all I got. And I'm like, you know, when you get a new toy, if you will, a new phone, you're just kind of ready to use it and get your information transferred. Because not only that, but my old iPhone 6, I'm giving to my daughter Maddie to use. Uh, and she's all excited as well. So it's, you know, there's kind of a domino effect going on here. So I'm in my office, I'm working on this. And then outside my office, um, I can hear my kids who normally get along pretty well. And there's, you said this, no, you said this, and, bah. and this is going on. So I can feel underneath it all. I'm, I'm getting a little bit like, oh, okay. Then my office door opens and the cat runs in and the dog runs in and there's chasing and there's dad, we need you. And then all of a sudden Beth Ann comes in and is like, hey, are you almost done? Because I need to, can you grill some stuff for dinner? And I'm like, and I'm going crazy, and finally I'm like, everybody out, leave me alone. And I'm like, Beth Ann, my phone, it's not working. And what's funny is she had just had an issue where she couldn't get something to work earlier in the day, so she totally understood. McKenna had had an issue where she couldn't get something to work earlier in the day. Maddie had had an issue. We are all dealing with this. You want everything to work perfectly, and when it doesn't, you're like, I am about to explode. I tell you this story because... This is where Jesus is. He's right where we were. Here we are in chapter seven of Mark and Jesus is just about to burst. He's like, Argh. think about it for a second, right? We're in chapter two. Jesus is in Capernaum. He heals the paralytic and then the scribes and the Pharisees are in the back of the room and they're like, I can't believe he said that. Only God can convince this. Man, this is blasphemy. And he can tell that they're frustrated and they're just picking at him. Well, then they do it again in chapter three. They're like, what do you mean? And they even basically call him Satan. They're like, the, only a demon can cast out another demon. So Jesus must be a demon. I mean, this is like Satan himself. And it's like, ah, but he keeps calm in chapter two. He keeps calm in chapter three. Then you get to chapter four and we find out that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is killed, gets his head chopped off. Well, how do you think Jesus is feeling when he hears those news, that news, right? So the frustration is building. Then we get to chapter seven, okay? Oh, and by the way, in chapter six, they come after him again. I mean, it's just like, it's incessant. It's just keeps coming, keeps coming. Pick, 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 pick. You're blaspheming. You're from the devil. You are the devil. You're the worst. And they're always there lurking in the background, just ready to find anything they can grab a hold of, to point fingers at Jesus and say, you're horrible. So finally, chapter seven, here come the Pharisees again. And here's what they say. This is starting verse one. If you wanna look at uh, Mark chapter seven, starting with verse one, it says this. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him 
with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled as they were unwashed. Shock. For the Pharisees, in parentheses here, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Holding to the traditions of the elders, and when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. So the Pharisees and the Jews had, had basically made this huge deal about you have to have clean hands. And they had taken something from God's word and they had twisted it and turned it into this tradition that was even more important than anything else that your hands had to be cleaned and they couldn't be defiled. And if you just touched a piece of dirt, well, you better go do this big ceremonial cleansing of your hands. And they bragged about it and they showed it off to everybody to show just how great and amazing they were. Because look how clean my hands are. Woo! Right? That's what's going on. And they're frustrated because they see Jesus and his disciples not doing what they have told everyone they must do if they're going to be clean. And, it, and then it says this, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they come to Jesus and they say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? Now, at this point, Jesus is like, he is done, okay? Chapter two, you coming after me, you don't say anything. Chapter three, John the Baptist is dead. Finally, he's like, that's it. I've had enough of you guys. And he turns around. And I love this because, you know, I have a little bit of a temper. It sometimes builds up and you're going, oh. Jesus does the same thing. And he turns around. And this is what he says. This is verse six. And then Jesus punched him in the nose. Well, that's not what it said. That's not what he did. But he actually did just symbolically. This is what happened. It says, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, you bunch of hypocrites, as it is written. And then he says this even worse, right? He calls them a hypocrite, which is a person who says something, but does something else. They act like they're all perfect on the outside, but on the inside, they're rotting to the core. And that's what he's saying to them. You're a bunch of hypocrites, you Pharisees, shut your traps. And then he says this, and no one, by the way, wants to hear this, nobody, but Jesus says it to them. He says, this people honor me with their lips. He's quoting from Isaiah, but their heart is far from me. He's calling out the Pharisees in front of everybody. He's saying, they honor me with their lips. They say the right things, but their hearts are far from me. They're not with me. They don't actually truly love me. They say they do. They don't. They're liars. And then he says this, in vain do they worship me. You can have clean hands all you want and pray out loud in front of everybody, all these big prayers and act like you're generous and you're giving stuff. But the reality is you're doing this in vain because I know your hearts and you're a bunch of liars and your hearts are far from me, and you don't really care about me or anybody else. You only care about yourself. And then he says to them, you teach as doctrine the commandments of men. In other words, God's commandments, which he wants taught, he wants everybody to understand, they have been lowered down, and now they've made all these rules about 
washing your hands and washing that cup and eating the right thing and doing the right thing. And they've elevated those things over God's word, God's laws. And they said, these are the most important things. And if you don't do these things, you will never see God. You can't be clean. You can't worship. You're on the outs. Jesus is sick and tired of it. He's like, you have elevated the commandments of men, you, that you've made up these commandments, and you've put them above the commandments of God, and I'm sick of it, and I'm calling you out, you hypocrites. Then he gives them an example. Check this out. He keeps going. I mean, he's fired up. He's not messing about here. He says this, verse 8, you leave the commandment of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. You have left what God intended, his commandments, the proper things, and now you hold to the traditions of men, you. And then he gives them an example. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting, rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said to honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, That if a man tells his father and a mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, which means has been given or set aside for God, then you no longer permit him to do anything to help his mother or father, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things do you do. In other words, you have taken your commandments, placed them above, and now you've basically voided out what I want and what the Father wants you to be doing. And he gives this amazing example of you're supposed to honor your father and mother. You're supposed to, if they call up and they say, hey, I need some help. We, you know, we need the barn fixed or, or I'm, I don't have enough money to buy food. They were saying, well, you can just tell your parents that everything I have has been dedicated to God, belongs to God, so I'm sorry, I can't help you. And you come off, they would come off as really religious. Oh, like, you know, everything I own actually belongs to God, so I can't give it to you, mom and dad. And Jesus is saying, wrong. You have now voided the command that I gave you in the Ten Commandments. And the, and the one in the Ten Commandments, by the way, they had a promise. The only one with a promise, which is honor your father and mother that you might have long life and be prosperous. You have voided that. So you can be selfish. So you can keep all your money and all your stuff to yourself and you can just tell your parents, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. I don't have any money. It's all belongs to God. I belong to God, so I can't help you. And he's saying, no more. No more, Pharisees. Calls them out, you bunch of hypocrites. It's powerful. And actually, you know what it is? It's a little scary because we don't want that to happen to us, do we? None of us want to be said, by the way, your lips, you you say the right things, you lift your hands when you're worshiping, you come to church, I see you with your Bible, I see you taking notes, but the reality is your hearts are far from me. No one, no one wants to hear that. God, I don't want to hear that. So what's our examples? What's our, what's our takeaway from this powerful passage? Mark wrote the gospel And he put everything in it for a reason so that we would understand the heart of God and that Jesus could teach us and model to us what we need to be about. So I was thinking about it like as a church, 
First of all, let's think about it as a church. Do we have anything as a church, any sort of traditions, any sort of expectations that are not from God? Anything that says you have to do this in order to be a good Christian. You have to dress up the right way. You have to show up at this thing. You have to wear the right clothes. You have to sing the right songs. Do we have any of those things? We need to ask ourselves that. Is there anything that we're doing as Forest Town Church that would, that would hinder somebody who doesn't know Jesus from getting to know Jesus? Is there anything that we would do? I can remember a few years ago, I was speaking at a church and I invited some of the young people that I was working with in Young Life. And these are mostly kids who don't know Jesus, right? So we show up at this church and one of the kids comes along and he's got a hat on because he always wears a hat. And I didn't think about it for a second because I don't care if he wears a hat or not. But we walk in the church and there's a deacon sitting there at the door greeting everyone. He's the greeter. He's the first person you meet as you walk in the church, right? And we're walking in the church and this kid goes to walk by and the deacon reaches out, doesn't know the kid, reaches out, grabs the hat, pulls it off his head and says, hey, no hats in here. And then he hands him the hat and says, welcome. How do you think that kid felt? Do you think <laughs> that he had any intention of ever showing back up at that church again? No, not a chance. The greeter, the first person he meets in the first time he's ever stepped foot in a church, yanks his hat off and says, no hats. You're doing it wrong. There is expectations here. There are traditions here. You don't know them yet, but we're going to teach you. There's a story I read one time in a book called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World by Rebecca Manley Pippert that I think is actually a great picture of what we should be doing and what it should look like as a church for us. Rebecca had moved to this uh, new place and she was doing ministry at this university and she'd gotten to know this guy named Bill and Bill wasn't a Christian, but he was interested. And so he uh, heard that, you know, as a Christian, you should go to church. So he just on his own one Sunday morning walked into this church. Now, this is a really traditional middle class, maybe upper middle class church. And, you know, everybody's dressed way up, you know, coat and tie. And uh, he, uh, Bill, by the way, is a really carefree guy. He walks in wearing a t-shirt, kind of torn, shorts, no shoes. And his hair is a complete mess, right? He's having a bad hair day. And he walks in the church. And as he walks in, it's full. It's like rammed. And the service has already started. He's a little late. So he starts to walk from the back of the church towards the front, looking for a place to sit. Now, think about it already. Think about this, that he's walking down to the front and he can't find anywhere to sit. And no one in the middle of the service, as they're seeing him walk forward, offers him a seat. No one. So he gets to the very front of the church. He's looking around and he realizes there's no empty seats anywhere. So what does Bill do? Bill just sits down on the floor, on the carpet, crosses his legs and, and just sits to listen, wants to kind of check out church. Now, everyone's sitting there and they're all kind of going, who is this guy? And does anyone know him? And what's he doing? And um, 
People are a little unsure what to do. Then suddenly this older man gets up. He's a deacon in the church, well-respected. Everybody knows him. And he gets up from the back of the church and he begins to walk forward. And I'm sure some people are thinking, oh, he's going he's gonna to tell him how it works around here or he's going to escort him out of the church, what, whatever, right? They're all watching. And this old man walks up to Bill and then slowly he sits down next to Bill on the floor, crosses his legs the way Bill has, and then he opens up his hymnal and starts to sing along with Bill. And everyone in the room is shocked and everyone in the room is moved because they've seen a picture of what does it look like for a person who loves Jesus to love somebody who doesn't. Not placing expectations on them to meet our standards and our traditions and to know what it is to fit in here, but instead someone who came to him, to Bill, to say, I just want to make sure you know that we're incredibly glad you're here. I think about this all the time. When we work with Young Life kids, I want them to be able to step foot in any church, including Forest Town Church, having never stepped foot in a church before and think, I love it here. I don't want to go anywhere else. This place is great. Even if they don't know how it all works, you know, there's announcements and greetings and songs. Doesn't matter, right? We just want them to feel like, man, I can show up there and everybody there is glad I'm there. That's what we want. And I think that we're doing a pretty dang good job about that Forest Town Church. But we should continue to ask the question, is there anything else we need to be doing? Is there anything that we're doing that would hinder somebody who doesn't know Jesus from coming to know Jesus? Something, some sort of tradition or elephant that we've allowed to just kind of build up that we're not even thinking about anymore? I think it's a really helpful question. But I think an even more important question is this. Are we people of integrity? You see, the Pharisees weren't. They said one thing, but they did something else. But we have to be, right? We have to be people of integrity that when we say something, we actually do it, you know? Our words and our actions match together. And it's only by doing that will people actually listen to anything we have to say, right? I mean, just the other day, right, we heard about this guy, Professor Neil Ferguson, right? He's from the Imperial College of London. He was leading the task force. He's the guy that went to Boris Johnson when everybody, all of our kids were still going to school and we were kind of taking this thing a little bit more like Sweden. And suddenly he comes in, and he says, listen, I've got a model here that says, if you don't lock this country down, somewhere between 250,000 and 500,000 people are gonna die. Everybody has to stay home. I mean, everybody has to stay home like right now. And so Boris Johnson listened to him. So did they in America, right? He influenced not just the UK, but the US as well. And we were all like, oh gosh, this guy, he's like an expert. He's leading this team. He's really, you know, high ranking. He's brilliant guy. We got to listen to him. And we did. And so all of a sudden, seven weeks ago, over seven weeks ago, the country locked down on his advice. And then what did we find out just a few days ago? That he didn't even take his own advice. That he said, yeah, you shouldn't leave. You shouldn't be meeting up with people. And then we find out that a woman who's not his wife, but is somebody else's wife, came to his house twice during the lockdown. That he ignored 
his own advice. And when we found that out, what do you think happened? Guess what? He had to step off the advisory committee. He lost his influence. He became a hypocrite. And nobody wanted to hear from Neil Ferguson anymore. It didn't matter that he was still the same person. He lost his integrity. He said one thing and he did something else. And that does not work in this world. We as Christians, we have to be people of integrity. If we say to someone, well, being a Christian means that you forgive others. Well, guess what? We have to forgive others. Being a Christian means that you pray. We should be praying. It means that you're in the word. Well, we should be in the word. If we say, Jesus is the most important thing in the world to me, but then we do everything else but spend time with Jesus, we are hypocrites, right? If we say, I am a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, and he is my main priority, and then we binge for hours on Netflix and Disney Plus and everything else in the world, what are we communicating to people? That we're hypocrites. That we don't actually mean it when we say it. And guess what happens when we do that? We lose our influence. We lose our voice. And then people look at the church and they say, yeah, all they care about is money. They care about influence. I mean, they build these giant buildings and they drive these fancy cars and they live in these big houses and that's all they care about. And they want their little da 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 They watch us. We are ambassadors for Christ, men and women. And they watch our lives and they watch what we say and they watch what we do and they go, do they match? And if they don't, that's their excuse to say, see, we're out. We have to be that. I love this whole story. Uh, This lady went to uh, Gandhi years ago to say, hey, I have an issue with my son. He's addicted to sugar. Can you help me? And Gandhi said to her, come back in two weeks. She's like, come back in two weeks? Like, yeah, come back in two weeks. So two weeks later, the lady comes back with her son to see Gandhi. And um, she brings him in and he walks up and Gandhi says, hey, you need to stop eating so much sugar. And the kid's like, okay, sounds good. This is Gandhi. You know, he's a pretty smart guy. And the mom's like, why couldn't you say that two weeks ago? And Gandhi looked at her and he said, well, because I was still eating sugar two weeks ago. I had to give it up myself so that I could have the integrity to say, give it up. I've given it up. That's what it looks like. Our words and our actions have to match together to to call somebody to, to forgiveness means that we have to be people who are forgiving. To call people to be generous, we need to be people who are generous with our time and our money and our energy, our words, on and on and on and on. The Pharisees weren't. They lost their voice. And Jesus looked at them and he said, you are a bunch of hypocrites. And he said, your lips worship me, but your hearts are, are far from me. May it never be that that would be said about me or you, that I, my lips say that I love Jesus, but my heart is far from him. We don't want that. That's why Mark wrote this. And that's why this is so meaningful to us. 
that we would be men and women of integrity. That when we say we love Jesus, people believe it. And when we do that, people want to find out more. Let me pray. Thanks, God, for today, for the chance to look into your word, to understand more about your heart, that you care so much that we do what we say, that when we say yes, that it is a truly a yes, and when we say no, it's truly a no, that we are people that others can trust, that our hearts are truly with you, that we're not just saying it, but we actually do trust you and love you with everything. You are good and faithful, and our lives belong to you. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen.